Last month, 1,400 coal miners, members of the United Mine Workers of America, walked off the job at 35 mines in Virginia and West Virginia. The contract between the Pittston Coal Company and the UMWA ran out in February after more than 100 negotiating sessions between company and union bargainers failed to bring an agreement. A federal mediator has now been brought in. He'll sit down with the two sides on Monday. This strike, like so many other strikes in an area of the country known for long, bitter, and often bloody labor battles, pits the workers against the company, union miners against non-union miners, and sometimes father against son. Dan Collison traveled to southwest Virginia and has this report. The rolling hills of Appalachia in southwest Virginia are in all their glory this time of year. The wild dogwoods are out in full bloom, splashes of white on a backdrop of green, all shades of green, poplars, hickories, oaks. But there's some added shades here in Appalachia this year, the greens and tans of camouflage. Members of the United Mine Workers of America and their supporters are wearing camouflage fatigues, hats, scarves, anything they can get their hands on as a show of solidarity for union miners on strike against the Pittston Coal Company. Here in the mining town of Wise, an old school bus painted camouflage colors sits parked on a street corner. Ben's Army Surplus is doing a brisk business these days. I just work it out my bus, mainly working on weekends, but I've been working it day and night here in the past two weeks. <laughs> ben Mullins owns and operates the stand along with his wife, Anita. He's decked out in camouflage pants and hat and a green t-shirt showing a map of Vietnam and the words, I'm sure I'll go to heaven because I've already been to hell. A Vietnam War veteran, Ben Mullins is also a veteran of the mines, and he says he's behind the Union all the way. I rely on the miners and the hunters, which 99% of the miners are hunters anyway, you know, so that's, that's my bread and butter. Could you show me around? You think yeah, you could show me what sure, you're selling? Sure, come on in. What we've got left, we've not got There's much not left. <laughs> go on in. Okay. Yeah, we've, we've got the t-shirts, the pistol belts, and then we've got the women's swimwear. Uh, uh, camouflage bathing suit for women. Right. Are those selling? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're selling good. We've run out of the sizes. So. <laughs> Last Sunday, about 10,000 camouflage-clad mine workers, their wives, children, friends, and neighbors, packed into the Wise County Fairgrounds for a rally in support of the strike. It looked a little like a USO concert overseas. But this is a battle that's been fought over and over here in the coal mines of Appalachia. What makes this strike different, though, is the widespread use of nonviolent civil disobedience. Since the strike began a little more than a month ago, about 1,300 people have been arrested, most for peacefully blocking the entrances to Pittston mines and other facilities. This is the first time in recent years that organized labor has used the tactic on such a large scale. The strategy is to slow production at the mines and draw more attention to the strike. But there's another reason. There's almost always violence during coal mine strikes in Appalachia. So at last Sunday's rally, Union President Richard Trumka, dressed in camouflage fatigues, implored the strikers to remain nonviolent. I appeal to the entire community because the entire health and welfare of the community is at stake. I appeal to you to fight in a nonviolent, effective manner. The next morning, picketers fan out to some 30 Pittston facilities. This is the Moss 3 preparation plant where coal is processed. Moss 3 is one of the largest coal processing plants in the world. 
On a normal day, more than 500 trucks run coal in and out of here. But the strike has brought the operation almost to a standstill. A lone bulldozer pushes coal into a huge hopper. From there, it goes onto a conveyor belt to be washed, dried, and loaded into rail cars. It's a cool, wet, dreary morning, and a group of miners mingle around a wooden hut that serves as a makeshift headquarters at the entrance to Moss 3. Some miners warm their hands by a wood fire built in a metal garbage can. One gazes up at the bulldozer, now operated by a non-union miner. That's my livelihood up there. It's not a good feeling. It's a bad feeling in the inside. But uh, he wouldn't be up there if I wasn't here for a ride. Another miner stands out in the rain, whittling on a cedar stick. A plastic garbage bag keeps his camouflage fatigues dry. I ask him what he thinks is at stake here. Well, the whole future of Southwest Virginia is at stake. My daddy had 40 years. His daddy had worked for this company. My daddy spent almost 40 years for the same company, never another company. And you can't let what you, you heard just go down the drain just because some company's money hungry. The battle lines are clear here at Moss 3. There are the mine workers dressed out in their camouflage. Across the road, about a dozen state troopers in their blue-gray uniforms stand near their patrol cars. Virginia Governor Gerald Belisles called in some 300 troopers about a week before the strike began, and they haven't left. The union has criticized the state police for some rough handling while making arrests. Inside Moss 3, a gray pickup truck sits parked on a hill, keeping watch on the strikers. The truck is partially obscured behind a metal barrier. Two men are inside. They're members of the Asset Protection Team, a private security force specializing in labor disputes. They wear dark blue jumpsuits and with their video cameras record just about every movement, including me as I walk up to the entrance to get a closer look. These security guards have a reputation around here. They're said to be mercenaries mostly, recruited through ads in Soldier of Fortune magazine. On the other hand, given the way coal strikes have gone in the past here, it's a little strange to see striking miners sitting down peacefully in front of a convoy of trucks. Union spokesperson Joe Corcoran concedes some eyebrows were raised when veterans of the civil rights movement were brought in to teach civil disobedience. I would have to admit that there was a certain amount of nervousness at first, uh, kind of everybody looking at each other saying, like, you know, give me a break. I mean, the almost... Uh, an unspoken statement about, like, I'm a man, you know, like somehow or another that this is potentially threatening to my manhood. But after about a half an hour into it and you started to talk about how it works and why it works, it went like clockwork. Our people responded as if they had been doing this all their life, and it was rather remarkable. Did you ever think you'd be using some of the same tactics that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was using back in the Civil Rights Movement? Did you ever think you'd be involved with something like that? Myself, personally, no. But I thought I lived in a democratic country. Myself, I never did think a government sends stormtroopers down here on a season. The civil disobedience has spread beyond the mining sites. This is Clintwood High School. About a week and a half ago, more than 100 students here walked out of homeroom and marched down Main Street to the courthouse, where they demonstrated in support of the mine workers. The walkout touched off a series of similar protests in other high schools throughout the area. But the Clintwood students who walked out didn't go unpunished. Bud Phillips is the principal of Clintwood High. They have to write a paper on the history of the United Mine Workers because many of these students grew up when there was not a lot of labor dispute and a lot of people working in the MWA, and they need to know the history of the MWA as well as the struggle and some of the problems that they've encountered. So we have assigned them a five-page report to write on the history of the MWA. 
A walk through downtown Clintwood, population about 3,000, located in the heart of all the strike activity, leaves no doubt about where sympathies lie. In the window of the White Star Cafe across from the courthouse, a sign reads, We Support the UMWA. A camouflage bow is tied to the front door. The same is true for the hardware store, the pet shop, the sewing shop, where three different types of camouflage fabric are on display, and the Christian bookstore, where a sign reads, UMWA, let's pray. There's no way Pittston can win this track. Joe Baker is the editor and publisher of the Cumberland Times, a weekly newspaper housed in a cluttered office in Clintwood. Baker grew up here, and he remembers the times when his dad made $5.50 a day working in the mines. But he says he can't remember ever seeing the community quite like this. The people uh, are all fired up. I mean, that's from almost babes in arms to grandpas on canes. And it's a, it's a solidarity thing. It's, uh, it's unity. And these people just believe that they're not going back to the old days, the old wages, the old times. While the union may be winning the hearts and minds of local residents, Pittston has been winning in the courts. Local judges have issued injunctions severely limiting the size and number of pickets. The union is ignoring the orders and stands a good chance of being found in contempt. It's law-breaking. It's challenging the government of the United States. Mike Odom is president of the Pittston Coal Group. This is the same thing that the Ku Klux Klan do. This is the same thing the Nazis did. Uh, the same thing the Communist Party do. They come in and try to overthrow a government. That's what they're doing. There are very few issues on which Pittston and the Mine Workers Union agree in this dispute. The union charges the company with trying to dismantle a long-time pension plan that serves as a safety net for thousands of retirees and future retirees in Appalachia. But Pittston says the pension benefits it's offering are better than any union plan in the country. The mine workers contend that the company is also abandoning hundreds of retirees by taking away their medical cards when the latest contract expired 15 months ago. Cecil Robbins retired from Pittston in 1980 after working for the company for 24 years. Robbins, who's now 71, suffers from black lung disease caused by years of breathing coal dust down in the mines. As a result, he's had to have part of his left lung removed. Any treatment Robbins might need for black lung is covered under a special fund set up by the federal government. But he says without his medical card, he can't afford to visit the doctor for other health problems. Well, I think it's downright dirty myself, you know, uh... You work that long for a company, you know, and you get this disease, black lung, from them, you know. Then they turn around and then take your hospital card away from you. Treat you as like you're some animal. But Pittston says when the contract expired, the company no longer had a legal obligation to provide medical benefits to retirees like Cecil Robbins. Again, Pittston President Mike Odom. We offered the union to continue that payment even though we weren't obligated to. We just said, don't slow down. Don't interfere with the mind. Don't sabotage. And the union said no. So my conscience is clear. Pittston is the largest coal producer in the state of Virginia and the country's biggest exporter of metallurgical coal, the kind used to make steel. Most of its product is sold to Japan. Because Pittston competes on what it considers an unstable world market, it's asking the union to make concessions it wouldn't normally make with coal firms that sell domestically. For example, Pittson wants the authority to contract out certain jobs. The union says that business will surely go to non-union firms who can then hire from the huge pool of mine workers who've been laid off in recent years. All this, says union spokesperson Joe Corcoran, is an effort by Pittson to break the union. 
this is an attempt to return uh, to the days uh, that the union fought 20 years ago. But Pittston President Mike Odom says the real problem is the union. Well, what is the issue is the union is very reluctant to recognize that uh, the coal industry is uh, at a crucial point in its history, uh, and they have to change. The union says the changes Pittston has undergone the past few years is causing all the problems. For about a half century, the company and the union were on pretty good terms. But things changed when a new management team headed by executive Paul Douglas was brought in. Pittston, based in Greenwich, Connecticut, began diversifying, buying up an air freight and an armored car company, both of which are non-union. The mine workers say Pittston should have reinvested instead in its coal operation. They say Paul Douglas and his team have no understanding of the coal business and simply don't care about the people of Appalachia. Another day of picketing outside the Moss 3 plant. A group of about 20 people stand in a circle singing union songs and spirituals. Most are women, coal miners' wives, daughters, and sisters. They call themselves the Daughters of Mother Jones after the legendary union organizer. About 10 days ago, some 40 daughters occupied the lobby of Pittston's regional headquarters in Lebanon, Virginia. They're angry at the company for a lot of things, not the least of which is its attempt to get miners to work on Sundays. Pittston says it realizes this is the Bible Belt and that it won't force anyone to work on the Sabbath. But the daughters of Mother Jones don't believe it. Let me tell you something. God won't let Paul Douglas by with that. Now, he's a merciful God, but he's also a God of wrath. There was one time that the Lord opened up the earth and it swatted 3,000 people. And the Bible said he's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He changeth not. And when Paul Douglas thinks that he's coming against human people, he might be. But now when he's coming against the Lord, he's coming against the wrong person. And what's your name? I'm Mother Jones' daughter, number 22. I'm, pr I'm proud to be a wife and a daughter of a union coal mining person. I'm proud of it. I am proud of that. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Suddenly, the singing circle is broken up. There's been an incident about two miles up the road from the Moss 3 plant. Someone says two miners have been hit by a Pittston truck. Miners and reporters scramble to their vehicles and race to the scene. State police have the road blocked off. Miner Henry Combs says he saw the whole thing. I was standing down there and I saw bodies flying over the hill. I don't know how many of the men hit, but there were two seriously injured here. So he was intentionally trying to run over these guys it's evident if you look at the tracks i mean i know your recorder can't show the tracks but it's very evident at full speed the man run eight feet off the highway to get to the men then he run up through there and jumped out with his pistol and started waving it the coal miners run over and got behind a car sitting right there and then the troopers finally come now that's the way it happened Later, the state police issue their account. They say the miners were throwing rocks at a convoy of coal trucks. One hit the driver of the pickup. He lost control of his truck and drove into the group of miners by accident. The miners then pulled the driver out of his truck and beat him up. No one has been charged. Police say they're still investigating. 
and one of the miners remains hospitalized with a broken back. Gathering down here around Marty. Back at Moss 3, just after the incident, about 600 miners have gathered near the main entrance. They're upset and some want revenge. The strike organizer Marty Hudson pleads with them to remain calm and nonviolent. Just control the emotions and uh, we'll win the strike. Everybody go back and like we'll see what they get ready to do here today and we'll deal with them. And we'll deal with them in a way that we're going to win. Yeah! yeah. trucks headed this way right now. We might as well just block the bridge, get the buses ready, and let's hit the, you know, let's hit the streets and like... More than a hundred picketers, about half of them daughters of Mother Jones, proceed to sit down and block the main entrance. They wait there, patiently, as state troopers prepare to move in. Even though some of its tactics are out of the 1960s, this is most certainly a strike of the 80s. The miners are armed with their own video cameras, and there are times when miners and security guards are running around videotaping each other. Just about everyone, security, state troopers, strikers, and reporters are equipped with walkie-talkies or scanners, and picket sites blare with the conversations of security and state police. Here, a miner listens in on a request by a state trooper to have the highway department remove some cars Strikers have left parked on a bridge leading out of the Moss 3 plant. Yeah, 354 Highway Department's refusing to use the front end loader. <laughs> highway Department won't push him off of the yeah, front end loader. He says he can do it. Do we have approval? And the request is being relayed. Stand by. Back at the main gate, the sit-in has blocked coal trucks from coming and going for about an hour now. But this time, the demonstrators will be moved by strike organizers with the help of state troopers, and a convoy of trucks is allowed to pass. Horace Jones is a retired mine worker and union member of 30 years. He was forced to retire after 18 years with Pittston when a huge slab of rock fell on him, causing massive injuries, including a fractured skull. Jones says he also suffers from black lung. Horace Jones doesn't mince words when he talks about the strike. He complains that the governor has brought in the state police to, as he puts it, babysit company scabs. Well, they escort them in and out to work. They escort the coal trucks in and out, and today, you might have heard about it, but today, there was a coal operator come by over and run a pickup truck over some men, and then backed up over them again, and the state police, now this is what I heard from the men that was there, that the state police drawed shotguns on them so they couldn't defend themselves. That's not right. If we, If they can draw shotguns on us, we ought to be able to draw some kind of a weapon on them. Daddy, uh, he's very vocal, and he gets his point across. Dennis Jones is Horace Jones's son. He's the chief prosecutor for Russell County, a job that includes prosecuting picketers arrested for civil disobedience, rock-throwing, and other charges. He says 
State troopers aren't guarding anything but the Virginia Constitution, which he says is under attack from the strikers. And in stopping that truck or in stopping that flow of coal, they're violating the Virginia Right to Work Act because that man that's driving that truck, our General Assembly has said he's got a right to go to work unimpeded by anybody. And they're violating that law when they impede him. Do you talk about the strike with your son? Very little. And I don't try to boss him around, and he can't boss me. Because I'm 100% for the union. No more, no less, 100%. And Horace Jones, who's out on the picket line just about every day, says he might just take part in a sit-in one of these days, get arrested, and force his son to have him prosecuted, an indication of just how deep convictions run in Appalachia. Like the Joneses, Pittston and the Mine Workers Union haven't been talking much since the strike began. The federal mediator who's been brought in is just beginning his work. So tomorrow and every day for the foreseeable future, the miners, company security, and state troopers will all assume their positions at the Moss 3 plant and other strike sites in the coal fields of southwest Virginia. I'm Dan Collison reporting.